Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Humanism Now, a podcast from the Central London Humanists for anyone active or just curious about the world of humanism. I'm your host, James. Now, this week, we hosted our first discussion group session of 2024, uh, the theme of which was looking at the ongoing crisis in Israel-Palestine. Um, and we encountered a lot, a range of views um, are from our humanist members on what should be uh, the position um, of humanists or humanist groups uh, when it comes to global conflict. So we wanted to use this week's podcast episode to explore some of those ideas um, in a bit more detail. And to discuss that, I'm joined by our two of our regular panellists. AJ, good to see you again. Hi, James. Glad to be back. Thank you. And Happy New Year as well. I think this is our Happy first New recording Year. of 2024. Um, what's your, uh, our icebreaker question this week is, what's your theme for 2024? I know you've got big plans ahead. So uh, what, what, what's going to be your theme for the year? Well, in some sense, my theme for this year is uh, the same as every year. I try and go for a consistency across um, across a longer period as possible. So I have certain watchwords, um, Kaizen, Ikigai, uh, for example, the Japanese philosophies that I, I really believe in, consistency, finding your purpose and trying to get a little bit better each day. So I think these kind of things I, I really believe in and I don't think a Gregorian uh, calendar sort of change has to has to prompt a rethink. But I suppose, as you said, I will be, um, I think we discussed in one of the previous episodes, I'll be traveling a fair bit to this year, especially to Asia. I've been trying to cut down my traveling, but I have to do it for work. And um, But that's, I'm really looking forward to um, new experiences and new people and new horizons. So travel and exploration could be a, a theme that <laughs> I'm, um, it's sort of being given to me rather than one that I've, I've chosen. So I like that it. Could be one. The year of exploration for AJ. That's great. Well, welcome back. And uh, the host of uh, our recent discussion group, uh, Mark. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, James. And uh, thank you for uh, inviting me on this week. Um, <clears throat> and also congratulations to AJ for uh, his exciting new uh, opportunities and exploring and, and travel, uh, albeit I'm sure it'll be as carbon neutral as possible uh, in uh, in Asia, so uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Um, and and what would be your theme for the year ahead, Mark? What do you have on, on the horizon? Yeah, so as as it happens, it's, it has coincided with uh, the, the change of year rather than being a sort of New Year's resolution. But I am uh, I, I, I've been sort of going to be changing my activities a little bit this year if if I can. Uh, so I have uh, a chronic pain condition, which is uh, very limiting, but I've. Uh, I am able to be involved with this group, which is extremely fulfilling. Um, but I also help run a, uh, a pen support group, a peer support group, which I helped set up a few years ago. And uh, I've somewhat neglected it over the last year or so because I've been so busy with other things. So I'm I'm hoping to um, be more involved with that and to reset it and try to sort of uh, uh, develop that because I think it's a, it's a very important area. And it's also one that's... Um, Peer support is within health is something which is um, very much uh, to the fore. is is seeing a lot of development, so I'm quite eager to be more involved with that. It's great. So a year of support and, and community. Exactly. Is that some some good aims. Uh, 
some excellent themes there. Thank you very much both. Uh, for me, it's going to be a year of uh, engaging more authentically, I think. Uh, fewer emails, more in-person conversations is going to be my my main objective for this year. So it's great to be joined by both of you for, for another insightful in-person conversation. Um, so I mentioned at the start, you know, 2023 was a, another year marked by um, global conflict, uh, unfortunately. Um, and we hosted this discussion group uh, yesterday, very well attended event, obviously a very pressing issue for uh, uh, not just our members, but everyone at this time. So I wondered, in light of recent uh, global conflicts, um, how do humanist principles guide your understanding um, uh, of these issues? And, and what insights, you, Mark, perhaps if we can come to you first, what insights did you gain um, from discussing um, war um, conflict in it, uh, from a humanist perspective, um, from meeting and, discuss and, and talking with other members? Yeah, I think probably the thing which came out uh, in so far as an, a consensus evolved in this discussion, as I said, we focused on, we made it a two-part discussion. The first part was really about whether or not um, humanists should speak out, um, both institutionally, really thinking there about humanist international and, and uh, HUK and, and other UK bodies um, on that that issue of uh, of conflict, but also other politically contentious, uh, you know, uh, immediate issues. Um, and then looking very much at the conflict directly uh, in uh, Palestine, Israel. And um, I think so. So the consensus that really evolved uh, in that discussion was that we should apply uh, almost a sort of a quasi, I would say, a, this is my terminology, a quasi judicial sort of humanist lens of being very objective uh, and, and applying to both sides. So rather than sort of being overtly partisan, which um, I think a number of people are quite uncomfortable with, um, as long as we are very objective about saying these are the humanist values and these is how we, this is how we apply them uh, in this context. And I think there was a genuine, a gen, also a general consensus that uh, certain things would be, um, you know, objected to uh, by humanists, um, you know, the killing of, of innocent people, you know, unprovoked aggression, um and, and and i think also those things which are deemed to be uh by relevant experts to be to be war crimes um or crimes against humanity so um or breaches of international law so i think that's sort of where we there were a range of opinions expressed but that was probably where the uh the sort of balance of opinion uh lay mm, yeah I, I was lucky enough to attend as well very interesting discussion and conversation and i agree i think whilst there was disagreement in how uh how outspoken um groups or individuals should be um there was definitely consensus of, uh, of, amongst uh, not not taking a side for sure but actually taking a um humanitarian humanistic approach to these matters and then you can you know once you agree on those principles you can start to apply uh, apply that and, and and act accordingly um, AJ, I know you weren't uh, able to attend, but uh, in terms of when we talk about humanistic principles or viewing this view humanistic lens, what are the the values of humanism um, that you see uh, that are applicable here and how should they be applied? Yes, it was extremely pleasing to see that we, uh, as Central London humanists, are being visible 
in talking about Israel-Palestine and hopefully many more issues to follow as well, because I think although there are certain issues of humanist priority, especially in the UK, and there are campaigning priorities that Humanist UK and um, the partner organizations like us have, I think it's important for us to be seen globally and to see how humanist principles can be put in action. And I think Mark explained some of them very well there. Being non-partisan, I mean, humanists are political. We have to be. We're concerned with policy. We're concerned with social welfare, the ordering of society, and how we try and solve civilizational problems. But we can't be party political, uh, mm. I think. And that's part of being objective, having an evidence-based approach. Um, when we talk about a scientific un underpinning to humanism, I think um, it may sound, sound a bit weird to apply that to, say, a political discussion. But I think there is something to be said there insofar as we should take a model-based approach and have models of understanding rather than hills that we want to die on necessarily. Um, that, and with that comes a humility. I mean, I, I've been following the Israel-Palestine conflict since 2006. But there's a lot that I don't understand about it. And I always, when I'm expressing a view, I always say, well, this is my current model, is my concept. But I'm open to other inputs, either from democratic um, organizations, the UN General Assembly, other experts and uh, authorities, such as the International Court of Justice. We're, we should always be willing to have that openness. And I think that's a really key part of the humanist perspective. And including in that, as well as the rationality and objectivity, there's an equal balance and a measure of empathy that's needed because we're not just automaton. We're not just sort of rational calculating machines. Sometimes, even though the logical point or argument may lead us to one conclusion, we have to understand that the reality of how human beings are in their lived experiences, in their consciousness of what's going on around them, there can there needs to be some some consideration for that and allow for people to have their intuitions and have maybe their emotional responses. And how do we factor that in into a loving, considerate solution or at least working towards a solution in a problem like Israel-Palestine or Russia-Ukraine? And at, at the end of it, whatever we decide, whatever policy we support, it has to be correct for that individual person. We don't just follow the crowd or jump on a bandwagon or get swept up in a, in a fervor individual independent arriving at that model of understanding not mm -hmm. claiming to understand the truth i think is very important and at the end of the day we have to judge by results if it's not having the result that we want then we should be willing to change and adopt and that also feeds back into that humility and not uh, finding hills to be prepared to die on but i think this is a, a very high level approach that i think serves me well in many parts of life but also in my social activism just to agree with aj i think that um we, you know you, you hear a lot of uh, opinions expressed around well it's not it's not really possible to say who's right who's wrong or you know we we ha we shouldn't take sides and therefore we shouldn't really express an opinion um which i would see as being rather relativistic <laughs> approaches yeah. and i think that you can apply I mean, you know, governments, law courts, you know, <laughs> administrations, they, they do this all the time. They, they apply a body of principles to a set of facts and, and come to a, some sort of conclusion. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do anything. So I, I think that we can do that as humanists as long as we are objective. And I think that that which is, you know, reasonable, fair, valid, perhaps even true, uh, you could say, stands up to the interrogation of a, of a, of a, of a sort of reasoned um, analysis uh, which considers all the evidence, looks at different points of view, and, th and then can come to a conclusion 
Uh, as long as you go through that process, then I think that's fine. That's not partisan. You know, truth isn't partisan, I don't think, uh, um, or valid process is not partisan. So, uh, and, and then ultimately, you've got to stand by what you come up with and uh, and I think have the courage of your convictions to, to say what you think and not worry too much about uh, what people, what resistance or pushback there may be in the short term, because I think history will judge you by where you actually stand um, you know, at the moment of crisis rather than where you come to maybe, you know, five years later when, when, when everything has moved on. And what may be true for a UK activist may be different for a US activist or for an Israeli or a Palestinian. Uh, that's also part of understanding our situation, what options are open to us, having an evidence-based, sensible approach, rational approach to if I do this action, what's likely to be that consequence? What's the best thing that I can do given my time, resources as an individual, and also given my my connections to whatever governments or other uh, country I may represent or have links to. So not everyone, I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day, and not everyone has to build in the same way. That's also following a humanist principle. Again, these aren't uh, excuses for inaction or, or dithering. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think it's quite the opposite. It's a way to filter because I think often people are saying it's so complicated. It's so, you know, everything's, the world's falling uh, down around our ears. What do we do? Having a humanistic approach, using a mixture of empathy, solidarity, and also a rational, democratic um, approach can help us filter through the myriad of options that are available to us and say, okay, well, these are the, and obviously it's not, it's better in a group. So I like someone a humanist or humanist UK or whatever group of movement you're involved in, struggling together with people and having that solidarity, that forces us to filter and prioritize and it can make the task seem a lot less daunting and you can see what the results are as you start to progress on that path. But that's, that's the task of us as community activists, as organizers, to help people feel less alone, help them feel connected to a larger, whether it's signing a petition or going on a protest, or people have to express themselves in different ways, artistic protest, symbolic protest. But whatever they're doing, we can see how it fits into a, a larger movement. And humanism can certainly offer that, and it should be in the conversation. Yeah, I think that voice is very important, and I think that's what was the... Um the conclusion that I came away with, I, I must admit, I went in with fairly with a fairly open mind. It's a discussion I haven't really landed on, you know, uh, how I felt, what I felt the correct answer was in terms of how um, how vocal humanists uh, should be um, when it comes to global issues. Um, but um, yeah, the overwhelming consensus was that um, the, the humanist voice is is very important because it does that. Um, provides that space where people can feel safe and can share their views and with those agreed principles of universal human rights, curiosity and compassion and evidence and reason, you can then start to construct some rational conversation around even very difficult, uh, very, you know, potentially personally um, traumatic topics. Um, because, you know, because there, I, there was definitely a sense uh, during that discussion group that, you know, everybody was, was, had a charitable um, and well-meaning motivations, you know, even if we even if there were disagreements, and that's such a strong voice. And I, th I think it was def also a, a, a theme throughout of, of spreading, if not humanism, but secularism. I think, and and the idea of tolerance um, around the world is it, it, it is what is, is a key factor in, in the spread of peace. I think one of the things that what, exactly what you say 
there is one of the one of the issues that came up is that there was a couple of people sort of questioned, and I've heard this before, whether or not these conversations are of value, whether we should have the because they they, they can seem to some people a little bit self indulgent, you know, a bunch of humanists yeah. sitting around having a nice cozy chat whilst you know <laughs> terrible things happen uh, in other countries, and you know yeah. we should be actually acting. But I, I think exactly what you say that those discussions are valuable because they they do provide us with that opportunity to reflect discuss and to by engaging with each other we 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 develop and um formulate our own uh views and evolve those views and so i think if that's all we did it probably wouldn't be enough but uh, i think i think that they are very valuable and exactly as aj says it's it's an opportunity also to have some sense of solidarity and support uh, when uh, um, and connection when addressing well, you know which are what are actually really quite troubling disturbing issues yeah i think you can't you can't say that this is too sensitive a topic therefore we shouldn't talk about it because that that can only potentially makes it worse and there was in fact um uh, a lot of talk of actually what what can we what action can we take to help mm-hmm. people um uh, again helping uh, the, 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 the human lives affected uh, in, the, in the region. Um, I think it leads on to, to the, the next topic, I guess, which, which was, again, broadly a bit of a theme of the discussion, which is really looking at the limits potentially of, of uh, anti-interventionalism. I guess generally, you know, humanists emphasize human dignity, autonomy and welfare. Um, but what do you see as the limits uh, of an anti-interventionist approach, particularly when it comes to you know, international conflicts outside of outside of us here in the UK. AJ, do you have any thoughts on that? It depends what we mean by anti-interventionist. Um, maybe the um, the common understanding would be okay. Well, we have to send um, weapons or um, militarily be involved or some other kind of uh, more macho. Uh, form of intervention. If it's that, well, I guess that also falls into the category under the rubric of let's consider the evidence base of it. Has it worked in the past? Is it likely to work now? Um, Consult military experts, consult uh, experienced diplomats and see what they're saying and not let our confirmation bias lead us. But unfortunately, I think interventions um, we often think quite narrow with them. Uh, the, I think the, the logic here is usually expressed something like, well, we can't do nothing. We have to do something. And therefore, we have to send aid or we can't. Well, it's imperfect. Okay, we have to send military aid, but the world's full of you know, villains everywhere. So if we didn't you know, send, um, if we chose not to deal with or send weapons to or send aid to people who have a perfect human rights record, then we wouldn't be able to work with anyone. I think that there's some kind of a point to that, but sending weapons or military aid or troops or uh, kind of uh, special ops advisors isn't the only way to intervene. We can intervene in many ways. Uh, sanctions is one, diplomatically, culturally. Um, we can s- send humanitarian aid and ask and insist that, okay, we're then building a, a broad network of support to then lobby other trade partners of an possibly offending country to change their views and soft power. So all of these, and diplomats, both in the Russia-Ukraine case and also in the Israel-Palestine case, are showing us, um, including hostage negotiators on the Israeli side, who have said, we need to change the balance of factors in what the two parties are willing to get out of this. And often, in understanding a humanistic psychology point of view, 
if you ignore people or parties or if you put them into a box or into a corner, that's when they become dangerous. And then when they become dangerous, they reach for whatever weapons they have, whatever means they have a striking out. So a humanistic intervention could be, for example, advocating for a nuclear weapons free zone in the Middle East, given the extreme tensions over decades in that part of the world, or advocating for more general disarmament um, on, a, on a wider scale, because that then lowers the risk factor if there is a disagreement or if there is some kind of a a uh, flare-up intentions, then people can't reach weapons because they don't have them immediately necessary. Whereas when people do feel um, threatened from an external enemy, that then increases the chances or the ways in which they can persecute the home population and spend more money on building up their military armaments. Mm. So I think uh, um, if we say anti-interventionist, as in be completely passive and literally just stick our head in the sand, no, I don't think, I think that will risk betraying humanist values of empathy, freedom, solidarity with those suffering, etc. But interventionism in a caution, sensible way that's evidence-based and that has um, an eye on democratic input. What does the UNGA say? What do other international bodies and regional bodies say? Uh, there, I think it's, uh, it's uh, there's definitely a case to be made for interventions. Mm. Uh, and Mark, for you, how, how should humanist ethics inform uh, when and where uh, we should intervene in, in, in conflicts to prevent a humanitarian crisis? Yeah, so I think I would uh, broadly ag agree with what AJ says, that a sort of a balanced uh, and reasonably objective uh, perspective, in, you know, invoking or applying humanist values of uh, concern for human rights, you know, um, avoiding uh, civilian deaths, uh, genocide, persecution etc these uh, and I, obviously to a large extent we know that um, humanists have had a, had a role in framing um, international law and uh, and um, conventions and so therefore um, you know secular values and humanist values are often pretty much the same thing uh, and um, or universal universal values um, are, are, and humanist values are very very compatible at, at the least. So I think applying those principles in order to, to decide. I think that there's. It's interesting that the the humanist tradition is very much aligned with um, um, seeking peace and, and um, promoting peace. And uh, um, you know, early members of proto-humanists were um, uh, you know members of ethical societies, and then and then humanists um, were often pacifists. And in the First World War, quite a number of them um, refused, became conscientious objectors. I mean, uh, Bertrand Russell was uh, a famous example of that and paid quite a heavy price for that, I think, in terms of their, their psychology and the abuse that they, they suffered. Um, but at the same time, in the Second World War, there was much of a, trend, a shift towards um, accepting that that was a just war. And therefore, humanists generally were prepared to, to, be, to get involved and to serve but then after that, then there's a lot of support and involvement by humanists in CND, for example. So, you know, as, as AJ references, the nuclear issue. So um, I think the, the humanist tradition is, is generally inclined towards peace and, and disarmament where possible, but also recognizing that under certain circumstances, military intervention uh, to support a humanitarian cause is justified and or, or just war against a, you know, an oppressive um, totalitarian regime. Um, but also, I think that in recent times, this whole issue has been sort of 
tarnished or complicated by some of the sort of less successful interventions. Uh, so we had what were deemed to be successful ones in Kosovo and Sierra Leone under the uh, under the Blair government, which was generally regarded as, as positive. But then we had, obviously, Afghanistan and particularly Iraq, which was framed to some extent as a, a humanistic intervention to remove an oppressive regime, which is widely perceived to have been a massive strategic blunder and caused enormous amounts of unnecessary stuff, suffering and, and destabilization. So that's the context, isn't it, in which we operate that this, and then Libya again was, was a, was a, you know, postulated as a humanitarian intervention and seems to have had some disastrous um, consequences for regional instability, etc. So, yeah, that, that's complicated it a lot. But I think the humanistic principles, um, if we can sort of extract those, still essentially apply along the lines AJ expressed them. In the 90s, we had um, this mantra of the new military humanism, uh, which was really uh, bolstering the Clinton-Blair uh, doctrines of, okay, well, now, especially after the Cold War, the Soviet Union has fallen, uh, the, the right side won, and that fed into a lot of self-justification and self-righteousness about how and where we intervene. And just by the very fact that we're doing it, you know, we're the enlightened West, the US and the UK and NATO, and therefore what we do must go. So that, that military humanism, we should sort of maybe make a, a throw up a flag and say that's quite unrelated to what, what we would say is, is humanism. It's, again, understanding human psychology and going back to a, uh, seeing us uh, in that what our psychological tendencies are, as we've said before, in so many aspects of our lives. That informs my uh, point of view as a humanist. Uh, humans tend to look for justifications for their actions before and after whatever their actions are. So just war, as Mark mentioned, in arguably every war ever fought was a just war because that's what the people who initiated them said um, they were because they, they wanted to look in the mirror and believe, and this includes some of the worst people who ever lived, but that doesn't mean that it's a just war. Um, now, there's obviously a spectrum of, again, depending on how the results and the evidence base shows the consequences of that were. Uh, but certainly, I think you um, bombing, for example, in, in the Libya case that uh, that Mark mentioned, those can't by any uh, means that I'm aware of be, be uh, seen as a humanistic intervention. And so that's, that's one thing that our tendency to self-justify that we have to be really cautious of, and especially when it's weird, we're doing it, because the hardest thing to do is look in the mirror. And another tendency is the sunk cost fallacy where, uh, once we sort of rush ourselves and, and g ourselves up into a fervor and intervene, we sort of say, "Well, we're, we're, we're already committed now," and that, and then that then becomes an excuse yeah. for further and further uh, interventions. And especially now, I mean, it's not as it was maybe even fifty years ago, certainly a hundred years ago, where war and military actions were quite distinct. And so there was a ministry of war, and it's sort of very, it, it can be more or less cleanly delineated from, say, peacetime. Now, especially in the past few decades, we live in an age of endless war, of dirty wars, of mercenaries, of black ops uh, operations, where we don't actually know um, many of these many of these actors are they are they can, are they uh, intelligence? Uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, again, of course, they call, Putin called it a special military operation rather than a war and invasion. I mean, semantics we can be banded around again as part of self justification of our actions. So I think because we're getting into this, we're in this era of dirty wars and the line between peacetime and wartime is blurring, we have to be extra, extra careful about even, I think, dipping a toe into 
intervening into another country's sovereign affairs in that kind of a very vi- aggressive way and using violence. And violence can be economic, violence can be military, um, even sort of sending military advisors can be seen in the wrong way. So I think favoring of diplomatic channels, inter- believing in international fora like the UNGA, like the International Court of Justice, using the already existing frameworks that we have, as imperfect as they are, and lending our, our support towards that has to be the, the best way forward, because otherwise we just open ourselves to um, might makes right, uh, and the strong do as they wish, and the weak do as they must. Yeah, I, I, certainly in, in in the modern age of disinformation, it's it's much more challenging to uh, conduct that virtue of evidence and curiosity and make sure you're making evidence-based decisions. And I think it's absolutely right to flag the um, uh, the dangers, uh, I think, as we, we often mention, the dangers of righteousness um, from any point of view, you know, even for those of us who are, n- are non-religious. And if we, humans are excellent at rationalizing and justifying uh, their decisions um, once, once, uh, once they've come to an emotive uh, um, decision. So, yes, definitely trying as much as possible, as you say, to really try to consider uh, as much evidence as possible and, and, um, and take that approach. And it's becoming increasingly difficult. I wonder, just before we wrap up on, on this topic, one of the interesting points, I think, of, of uh, discussion, whether there wasn't a broad consensus yesterday, was really how much we should, whether we should refer to this as a religious conflict. Um, there were certainly some strong opinions that it's unhelpful uh, to, to talk of this Israel-Palestine. You mean as Israel-Palestine as a as a religious war, um, and, and and others who who felt that it, it it's um, it's unavoidable. And obviously, you remove the religious element from the region, and and you you have much more of an opportunity to de-escalate um, the situation. Uh, AJ, I wonder from your point of view, you know, you're very much involved in in um, interfaith dialogue. Do you see a big role? Firstly, I guess, how much do you think it's right to emphasize the role that religion plays in the Israel-Palestine conflict? And secondly, um, what role do you see um, the 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 the, uh, the growth of secularism and, and, in particular, more interfaith? Not necessarily saying that people have to be humanistic or atheistic, but but actually promoting interfaith dialogue as as a route to greater understanding and and a long term route to peace. This is something that I really try and focus on in my interfaith work, and I think it's the high watermark and the goal of all of the interfaith community building and uh, the time that I spent with um, with religious colleagues and friends it leads towards things like this. In times like this is when we really show what uh, a humanistic love and a spirituality that crosses um, faith and belief boundaries and, and where the benefit of that can be. It can save lives, it can reduce suffering, it can break down barriers of ignorance. I um, so having said that, I wouldn't necessarily say that Israel-Palestine is a religious war. I don't. That's not my model of understanding. But religious arguments are deployed to exacerbate it. And again, as we said, just war theory, um, and we've we've seen um, the Israeli government use biblical uh, Amalekite references when it comes to how they view the Palestinians. So when, especially, it's. It's overcompensation, isn't it? It's projection. So that's another uh, very understandable and relatable human trait. When we're unsure of our ground legally, uh, and we can see that the anger within us or the response we that we sort of seem to be carried away with doing is inflicting so much harm upon others, 
we need to reach for very, very powerful millennia old arguments to fortify ourselves against the evil that we're, we're committing. And I, I say we as in humans. And mm-hmm. uh, so I can see that that's that trend certainly on both sides, both on the, the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, where then you get a war of uh, words and one upmanship saying, well, you know, we will fight to the last, you know, our God is better than your God, or uh, they're fortifying themselves to do, because um, humans, I think, most humans naturally are very averse to violence. So when people have to feel they are backed into a corner, like a tiger being backed into a corner, it needs to G itself up to then try and strike out at its perceived attacker. So that's it's the the crime is putting people in that situation. I think it's not surprising that people will reach for this religious argument, but it's putting people in that situation. And I think one way of de-escalating tensions I've found as you know, I, I run a, uh, I help facilitate a weekly Quran class and the past two weeks, which is why I couldn't attend the Israel-Palestine discussion group um, that the humanists hosted yesterday, uh, focused on Israel-Palestine. And sure, there are some avenues there where you can say, well, let's take people out of the political, very tense situation and atmosphere and look at how actually Islam and Judaism have so much in common. They're both Abrahamic and there's a history there and a theology. And I'm quite interested in that. Many humanists may not be, but it's it's, it's to do with human beliefs and human welfare and human uh, well-being. And a lot of people place a lot of stock in that. So I'm interested in it from a human welfare point of view and how we can build bridges and, and through dialogue trying to uh, build a better society. So from that perspective, I'm interested in it. And I think there is a beauty to be found in how people can find solace in in these uh, in, in theological and uh, divine doctrines. But and So there is some way to unlock tensions using that, but it's not the only way. There also has to be political solutions. It can't just be, let's have a Bible study, let's have a Torah study or a Quran study. We also have to address real on-the-ground realities such as water, you know, fences, walls, borders, and land. Ultimately, there has to be a practical solution that's offered in the real world, not just a change of theological perspective and you know, kumbaya and increasing love. Uh, it's, a, it's an important background, but I think, but dialogue can take many forms. For example, we can just even sharing food, sharing culture, sharing music, Humanist UK, uh, which I'm, I'm sure we'll have Jeremy Rodell on later on this year, the Dialogue Office of Humanist UK for a podcast. Uh, he's, he's very experienced in this and he often says it's not a debating, it's not meant to be a debating club dialogue. It's meant to be understanding, just exposing each other to that, to have that interface and have those interactions and trust that our common humanity will come out and we'll be able to connect and overcome our differences. Absolutely, yeah. That, that, that mutual understanding and understand that shared human experiences or shared human origins, the more you can spread that, you, you do start to build bridges and, and, and mend fences for sure. So, uh, uh, Mark, I guess to close, you, you moderated the discussion yesterday. What Were there any of the key takeaways um, or things you learned that you'd like to share? Yeah, I just wanted to come in on that religious point, uh, actually, because that was one of the points that uh, um, a number of people, including yourself, uh, sort of discussed in the in the conversation and it was and i think that probably the consensus was that it it wasn't really wasn't necessarily a religious conflict but it certainly was a conflict in which religion was involved and and probably in a way which wasn't positive <laughs> um in general and so one of the th- people talked about obviously hamas itself is an islamist organization so f- and islamism is, as a form of political islam is often it's the i think there's a general perception or uh, understanding that probably it's political 
And, and, and as some people, somebody said in the conversations about, you know, using religion as a galvanizing, um, um, activating force for political ends to a large extent, but then, you know, you, but at the same time, it does, it does, you know, promote, um, a, a quite an extreme version of that religion as a way of governing society, I think. Uh, so that that aspect came in. And then also, um, we talked about, we had quite an interesting uh, contribution from, uh, um, a member there who's uh, involved with humanistic Judaism explained a little bit about the operation of religious political parties within Israel with their PR system. They often have a quite a lot of leverage um, within the system. And uh, so there was a talk about the Shas, I think they're called, which is this um, group, which is highly religiously conservative, which is primarily consists of uh, Israeli Jews of um, um, Arab Jewish um extraction um who are often economically disadvantaged and tend to have and have le lower levels of uh, education um and uh, in general and, and tend to adopt a more religiously conservative perspective so obviously that's feeding in as well and then the other interesting point that was made by one of our committee members attending was around the role of evangelicals in america and their particular religious agenda which isn't really in the interests of either group arguably <laughs> um as it has a rather apocalyptic uh, uh uh, attitude to, to to those currently living in in the Middle East, um, and so yeah, it, it did show that that, that uh, you know religion is 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 actually quite an important factor in this, even if it's not a religious war per se. And, and it's arguable that you know there never has been a religious war, a pure religious war. <laughs> There's usually there are always other other factors, and religion gets mixed up with you know strategic and ethnic and nationalistic um, um, factors as well. So. Um, so yeah, that that was a very interesting uh, take, and um, but I mean, I think probably the, the main takeaway was just how uh, well mannered and respectful the conversation was, and I, I genuinely thought it could be quite a difficult, bumpy ride. But actually, um, as with pretty much every other discussion we've had, people were just you know just behaved with incredible um, consideration and, and respect for each other, and uh, it was a really um, orderly and uh, and and good-natured um discussion even though there were some quite sharp differences of opinion so that was very heartening it was indeed and, and thank you both for an orderly and good-natured discussion um on this as you say challenging and live topic um i'm sure it's something we will we'll be uh revisiting in the future uh, but thanks both for your time and we'll be back with mark and aj after this week's interview conflict in uh uh, in Ukraine, also raged on. And our guest uh, this week uh, is a journalist, Scott Jacobson, who had last year visited Ukraine uh, as part of a humanist group um, to uh, better understand the conflict and, and the situation for people there. Uh, so I'm delighted to introduce this week's guest interview with Scott Jacobson. Scott Douglas Jacobson is the founder of Insight Publishing and the editor-in-chief of Insight, an independent interview-based journal. Scott is a research associate at the University of California, Irvine, and a freelance independent journalist with the Canadian Association of Journalists. Scott Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us on Humanism Now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We, uh, we met a couple of weeks ago as part of your uh, interview series, which you've been doing, conducting interviews with um, humanists globally that you've met through Humanists International. It'd be great if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and just provide a bit of background of your journey to humanism and, and how you got involved, particularly in humanist journalism. I would say, and I think I've only told Andrew Cobbs in this, uh, my first introduction to humanism was inadvertently 
probably around the age of 14. Uh, it wasn't a book on humanism. It wasn't a humanist. It wasn't a humanist organization. It wasn't the humanist movement. Uh, it was simply the values of humanism in, in a comedic uh, way. And I have to thank the Brits for that. Uh, I was in uh, the Walnut Grove uh, Community Library, tiny library attached to a pool, um, community pool. Uh, I walked in there. Um, I forget for what reason. I, I might have been skipping class, probably. And I ended up going to a section for, uh, I think there was DVDs at that time. Uh, I remember pulling out one, and it had this very strange-looking group uh, of men. Um, and it turns out it was uh, Monty Python live at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, as Andrew uh, uh, confirmed for me, uh, several of them uh, are uh, humanists. I find a lot of their uh, comedy, uh, which I love, uh, very humanistic uh, in its orientation. Uh, it's, it's sort of absurdist, but grounded. Uh, and I find that very um, uh, enjoyable. And so that was probably the first inkling I had uh, of, of humanism, at least in sort of the global zeitgeist, uh, sort of seeping out from the Brits over to uh, Canada, uh, who we politely asked to let us be independent. Um, so, uh, from there, uh, I didn't really come across it, uh, in much of high school, uh, in university, I probably had some experience, uh, with a uh, model United Nations. Uh, so there's probably over 800 or so, uh, model United Nations per year. Uh, I took part in a lot of those, uh, both as a delegate, uh, and on the, um, not quite secretariat, but more sort of like chairing committees. Uh, side with World Health, Health Organization, with Security Council, etc. And uh, I remember one was a Harvard World Month, was probably the third biggest. Um, they have two to three thousand delegates. Um, it's, it's a five-day event. Uh, it's an excuse for uh, sort of young and up-and-coming uh, students around the world to uh, both get a lot of practice uh, in a simulation of the United Nations, uh, as well as to have a wonderful, expensive party. Uh, blowing a lot of money um, uh, at late at night, uh, most nights. And there's tons of events that they plan out. And so usually they have Harvard University followed by uh, a secondary host university uh, of that host uh, a country and city. Um, and then they coordinate to make that happen. And, um, and that practice of, of debate, uh, dialogue, cooperation, uh, that's really around the time of the foundation of a lot of the modern uh, organized uh, humanist uh, movement. Um, as, as we know, with the most recent uh, Amsterdam Declaration 2022, uh, mm -hmm. there ha there is more of an acknowledgement of um, patterns, tendencies uh, in the global history uh, of humanist values uh, popping up. Uh, so it is a universalist ethic uh, mm -hmm. within that um, uh, recorded human history. Uh, yet it's organized movement just happened to have happened uh, uh, within the last uh, century or so. Um, and with the United Nations, you know, Western world collapsed. Uh, people were trying to prevent uh, those uh, sorts of uh, atrocities from happening again. And so, you know, after the collapse of the League of Nations, uh, we had uh, the foundation of the United Nations. And that orientation really fits well uh, with uh, the secular humanist or humanist um, uh, worldview. And so that kind of practice at those multi-United Nations, I found 
uh, was sort of a precursor uh, to getting into that. Um, I started uh, in, uh, I was in three psychology labs uh, at that time. Uh, one was a lifespan cognition lab. Uh, one was, a, I believe, a gender and sexuality lab, but it was more around the media. Um, and then the third was a, uh, around uh, sort of crime and, and things like uh, things of that nature. Uh, and so there actually was coordination with uh, the lead researcher uh, and the um, local police. Uh, and so I actually got to interview three times. Um, this is the first inkling of uh, the journalistic uh, bend. Uh, mm-hmm. One gentleman who was part of the, uh, the RCMP, uh, the policeman in Canada you see on horses in parades. Um, and he was the first uh, individual uh, to be able to wear uh, a turban, I believe, uh, in the armed forces. Huge controversy, I think, in the 90s. Uh, and I got to interview him a few years probably before he retired. Uh, and that was really, really cool. Uh, that was in Surrey, British Columbia, Canada. Um, and so I ended up uh, writing for the newsletter of that psychology department, doing some interviews with people. Uh, and then I figured, why don't I just start up my own thing? So I started doing that independently. And of course, you have to self-fund and the time uh, for it. And I was doing well in psychology. I was, I was looking forward to doing a lot of work on individual differences. Uh, and that, uh, at some point, uh, came to a crossroads where I figured, I like doing this more. Uh, my talents and proclivities uh, are there. Um, I, I was getting uh, certainly scholarships um, and, and uh, you know, doing really well. Uh, in that area of study uh, and, and uh, research, yet I found that uh, certainly there was a lot more interest and passion uh, with journalism. And so I just decided to jump ship, switch degrees, and, and get on uh, journalism. So I switched from basically psychology philosophy to uh, more general studies where I can kind of survey a wide range of things and then use that base of knowledge to apply to uh, journalism, uh, especially in uh, question construction uh, and then response uh, on the fly. Uh, you need at least a base level of knowledge in a wide range of fields uh, to mm-hmm. be able to sort of converse with you know, these experts in different areas. Um, so uh, then I was writing for a lot of different publications, just reaching out to people. Hi, can I write for you? I'll write for free. Uh, and the free and the, the free part was, was the biggest thing. I think for a lot of people when they're getting an email, oh, this person can write based on the samples, and then they say free. They go ding, 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 ding. Come on in. So yeah. it becomes a thing like that. And for me, I uh, was writing a lot. I was spending a lot of time uh, just honing craft, learning how to edit, learning how to write, uh, learning how to transcribe, um, uh, learning that the grueling process of transcribing and other things. Uh, as part of uh, just coming to a final product. Um, that really came to a head probably with Kanadas News. Um, uh, there's one woman who I got in contact with. I forget off the top if um, uh, her name, but it was this particular person. If I remember, it'll the two. Um, she got in contact with Benjamin David, who was chief at that time of Kanadas News. Um, and over a year and a half, maybe two year period, uh, I wrote several hundred articles uh, for that publication, uh, and I began to be more formally uh, introduced uh, to the humanist movement there. So, uh, people like uh, AC Grayling, and you know, is it's interviewing a lot of these uh, Stephen Law, uh, these uh, humanists who mm-hmm. uh, cover different areas, whether it's philosophy uh, or public engagement of science and so on. And uh, I found that was really 
a point at which I found a lot more uh, natural just conversation with people because I didn't have to have the assumptions of the sort of the surrounding culture in which I grew up in um, British Columbia and to, and to provide some context for that. Um, the area I grew up in uh, was in Langley, uh, British Columbia, Canada, in particular Fort Langley. It's a national um, heritage uh, site, national historic uh, site. Uh, we call it the village or Langley. And next to it uh, is Trinity Western University. Um, it is the largest private university in Canada. Most or all of private universities in Canada are Christian. Uh, this particular uh, Christian uni private university is evangelical. Um, and they are the largest private university. So therefore, they, they, they are huge. Um, they are evangelical Christian oriented, not particularly of the American brand, but leaning that way. Um, they are political. Uh, they uh, are social in, in terms of wanting to impact culture. Uh, and there have been some studies, not a lot, looking at how as uh, Canada or Canadian society became more secular, uh, not only with the de decline of religion, but changes in things like the removal of the blasphemy law and so on, um, this particular university and its culture became more conservative. So it wasn't that they were reactionary, it's that the emphasis was uh, of conservatism or the orientation of conservatism, religious conservatism, was in reaction to the liberalization of uh, the culture. Right. Uh, okay. Funnily enough, yeah. So, um, so that provides uh, some background. So, with Kanadas News, uh, that was really then I started writing and I connected with one woman, Anya Overman, uh, who was involved with. Uh, yeah, she's going to be on the show uh, very soon, actually. There you go. So, so thank you, Anya. Uh, so, so, she was the first entry into doing some uh, writing for, I think, Humanist Voices was up and running at that time. But somehow she was the entry point to uh, Young Humanist International. Then things started picking up with Humanist Canada, Center for Inquiry Canada, and Humanist International. And then the story sort of developed from there. You mentioned you've interviewed many experts, many of people who are quite well known in the humanist space and, and, and uh, newcomers like myself. What have you learned and how has conducting these interviews shaped your views on humanism or your worldview in general through, through having so many conversations um, with experts in the field? The biggest trend uh, internationally is everyone agrees on the same values. Mm. That's why everyone seems to be more or less okay with Amsterdam declarations, things of this nature, or the shorthand version of uh, humanism. Uh, the difference per region, even per country within a region, is emphasis on what values. That's where uh, the rub is for most people. So okay. in certain areas, freedom of expression is more important. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, to others, uh, democratic, democratic uh, values and fighting for those are, are, are more important because it's what's more critically important um, for building the humanist movement in the country at that time. So it's almost like they found humanism uh, as a salve for particular issues in their country. So when uh, freedom of speech or freedom of expression uh, seems as if it's uh, under attack within a country, you'll see those types of humanists pop up and be arguing for that. Um, and, and, and it's like that on, on a wide range of issues. Uh, and that's really the only time uh, when I see humanists argue with each other if they do actually argue with each other. You know, I don't mean, and like, for instance, in Copenhagen, um, there was a very respectful debate over the potential to introduce um, a resolution uh, as a new policy um, re-emphasizing uh, the Russian 
Federation invasion of Ukraine when there was already one in, in 2022. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a very respectful debate among people who disagree with one another. Um, so that's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about real arguments. Uh, and it's really just over emphasis of the values. So yes. the values are the same. It's the rank ordering that uh, people put on them. Um, and so that, that's a qualitative difference that I've noticed uh, internationally. That's the biggest lesson that I think is important interpersonally uh, or organizationally when you're approaching uh, from one organization to another or as a person to uh, another person or an organization who's a humanist. So to try to find out what value are they emphasizing the most, then you have the common ground. And then that's your yeah. way to really um, uh, effectuate the, the diplomacy as you would get like the United Nations. I think, that, yeah, I think you used the term earlier when talking about Monty Python and, and it being grounded, right? I think, I think a lot of the views of a lot of the debates, people are grounded and they have the same foundations and the same general goals and um, that we want to achieve. Um, and, and starting from the same belief system helps as well. But I agree, it's the weighting that you put on those different issues. And, and I guess the, the roots that you get, you know, what's the most important issue to address first in order to get to achieve our, our, our sort of mutual goals that we all share. And on the, on the Russia-Ukraine point, I know you spent some time last year um, reporting in Ukraine. Um, how was that experience? And w- w- did you, w- what is the... Um, uh, I guess the humanist movement um, that you found in the region when you, when you were visiting there? It's, it's a mixed question. Um, so that started uh, in August visiting uh, Copenhagen for the world Congress and uh, general assembly of humans international. Uh, one of the keynotes was uh, Remus Kernia from Romania. Um, and then another was uh, Alexandra Romatsova, uh, who's the executive director um, of the Center for Civil Liberties in Ukraine. Um, and that institute won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize in 2022. And so I talked to both of them, got interviews with both of them. Uh, and Remus, entirely to his credit, uh, uh, offered for me to travel with him to Ukraine. That seemed insane at the time. I said yes. And... Literally, uh, I scheduled from August to late November to get things organized for time off from uh, work. And we went there eventually on November 22nd to, and I got back on December 6th. So given all the travel time, we were probably there for about 11 and a half, 12 days. Uh, and the rest was straight travel because you can't fly straight in, obviously. So I'd fly into uh, Kishino, Moldova, and then bus into Odessa. And then we go and travel from there. Uh, and uh, Ramos, uh, he, he planned the whole trip. Uh, he organized uh, everything. Uh, so, again, entirely the credit goes 100% to him for that uh, trip. Uh, the humanist movement that I found there was going there with a Romanian, <laughs> a former parliamentarian uh, Romanian uh, humanist. So, it was more the resilience of people that was probably the most uh, humanistic element that I found there uh, because yeah. we would go with city for a day or two. Then we would see areas that were bombed. Um, and we are talking even uh, areas that have no military targets around. Uh, we are talking residential buildings, administrative buildings, uh, UNESCO uh, heritage sites, cathedrals, um, uh, schools. Uh, so, uh, this, these are uh, campaigns of terrorizing a uh, public, and the air raid alarms will go off every night, no matter the city, 
somewhere between two, three, four, five a.m., one a.m. Uh, and so it's, I think it's a very uh, sleep deprived for uh, population for many of these uh, cities. Um, and it's uh, it's really being aware of what is happening in the moment. It's not hold, holding a rosary and, and praying for God to help you. It's really finding out, okay, we're in this city. What has happened recently? Well, they're targeting critical infrastructure. They bombed the water system. Okay, don't drink the water. It's poison. Don't shower too long. You'll get a rash, right? So it's really finding the practical elements of daily life. And then, okay, what was the purpose of why we came? We came to report. Let's go to the next bomb site. And so he would be on his TikTok uh, at the site, talking to people, um, reporting. Uh, and then I would be sort of taking pictures and then those pictures I would collect uh, for myself for articles I would write later, which are incoming. Uh, and he would um, have those videos that he would use uh, for some of the online stuff. So uh, the elements uh, of humanism that I found in Ukraine were mainly us traveling there and then seeing yeah. the, the resilience of people uh, and things of that nature. Uh, I remember in one city, it was like two in the morning, our alarm goes off. I got into the habit of half sleep, getting up and going to the, bathtub like it was going to help like an earthquake drill or something and uh i remember maybe two kilometers away just across, across the river maybe three boom boom okay and this way goes off okay we're on the way to the bus station to go to the next city our bus trip is at 9 50 a.m we're walking or dragging our luggage along with us rolling it along uh, about 9 30 uh we air raid alarm goes off we're pretty much at the bus station we're just looking for our particular bus and all we hear again is boom boom even closer and the civilians everywhere we're just kind of look at each other okay and then everyone so people are quite used to this uh campaign of terror against the public um and the further east you go uh the more soldiers you see naturally because this yeah. huge front line uh, that uh, is there so i think so that that answer the question on the humanist element uh, there yeah, it sounds like that's um, there's that community spirit which is getting just keep keeping everyone getting through in this, as you say, this this uh, terror regime. How did that experience change or shape your view on whether humanist groups should um, be more outspoken or involved, or, or what the, what the humanist perspective is on international conflicts? Uh, I think a lot of the rules of international law and international humanitarian law um, and rules of engagement uh, internationally uh, apply in a humanist frame. So I think going back to the United Nations, they have uh, stipulations uh, in various uh, rights documents about the right to self-defense. And right? so if your country is being invaded, you, I, I believe you have the right to self-defense um, or armed self-defense. You know, and um, and some of those, um, if someone is of a particular nationality, uh, and if that particular nationality is tied to a government which is making stipulations uh, to justify um, unprovoked aggression or even provoked unjust aggression uh, against another nation, um, uh, humanists may have to speak out against their country. Um, in the reverse case, uh, when the vast majority. Uh, looking at the resolutions uh, at the General Assembly of uh, the world, the members of the United Nations speak out uh, against uh, aggression by the Russian Federation against re uh, Ukraine, uh, then I think it's appropriate uh, for humanists to, to side with uh, the majority 
uh, in that case. And uh, in this particular case, uh, I think uh, Humanist International uh, put up that 2022 policy uh, on or approved uh, the resolution of the Kino policy uh, on uh, the Russian Federation uh, aggression uh, against uh, Ukraine. And they, they spoke quite openly uh, about the Russian invasion, uh, need, the need to uh, withdraw uh, all troops, uh, and so on. And uh, I think more or less the countries uh, that are against that are mostly, you're mostly going to find uh, humanists uh, in them. So I think we have three possible paths uh, internationally uh, to take on that. Uh, one, we simply do one-offs. Uh, S has already been done through that policy in 2022 on Human International. I haven't looked at other policies that might be relevant to wars uh, and aggression like that. Um, yet, just focusing on that uh, Russian Federation aggression against Ukraine, um, that w- it could be a one-off, and then we leave it at that. It could be a one-off, and then we update it as uh, new rights abuses uh, and resolutions come out from the uh, UN speaking out against that. Um, a third one would be uh, we provide uh, a perennial uh, statement that becomes a policy uh, for Humanist International that we can then reference every time we have a war uh, considered uh, you know, through a democratic uh, process of debate uh, by the international humanist community uh, as unjust, then they can sort of reference that. And, and individual uh, condemnations could come forward as well yet they could at least have that foundation of a a blanket uh, condemnation. A little closer to home, you mentioned growing up near possibly the most religious school in Canada by by your description. Um, The most religious post-secondary school, I would argue. Sure. (laughs) Um, So how would you describe the state state of secularism in Canada today? Are are you seeing threats to secularization the same way that we are, you know, seeing them rise around the world? Canada's a bit weird. Uh, it depends on the humanist. Um, you know, it depends on the issue. Uh, on, on some issues, uh, you'll get a very different answer uh, from uh, the Quebecois humanists than from the Anglophone humanists. Uh, I saw this when I was on the board of Humanist Canada. This was a constant argument that I saw. Um, but it was also generational because uh, those were uh, an older cohort. And for their generation in Canada, that was the era of Pierre Trudeau and putting in the Charter of Rights and Freedom in Canada and making the federal uh, documentation, uh, Anglophone and Francophone, bilingual. So for them, it's a much more sensitive issue. Uh, for younger humanists, it's not as important of an issue. Um, within British Columbia, the British Columbia Humanist Association, they tend to be very active. Uh, they tend to punch uh, quite above their weight. Uh, some we're speaking of Ian Bushfield uh, or Dr. Uh, Teal Phelps Bondaroff. Um, uh, so Ian obviously is the executive director of that organization uh, and uh, Teal is really on the research end of things. Uh, Ian, he's, he's known for being very good at organizing. Uh, he had this little bit of controversial period, but uh, I haven't heard much about that since. And then with uh, Teal, uh, he's very robust, uh, especially with um, documenting uh, municipal prayers uh, was one big uh, move. And they found that there was a lot. And it was like the end blasphemy laws campaign of Humanist International, where it actually has been quite effective in, uh, in ending blasphemy laws. You know, you can argue those just like it was on the books or whatever. But in uh, Canada, uh, we had one. It was only used once. Do you know, mm-hmm. do you know what it was used for or attempted? 
do you be used for? Do you know what? I'd, 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 I'd have no idea. I'd be guessing. So educate us. Decades ago, when The Life of Brian came out, people tried to use it. Of course. So. <laughs> so. We're back to Monty Python. It all goes back to them. Uh, so, and, and, uh, and again, it points out, uh, pointing out the absurdity of, of these laws. Yeah, it's well, I mean, it's um, if someone wants to uh, abide by that law and if they are that religion, go for it. Why does the rest of a society of religions or a different denomination or no religion have to abide by a religious law? Uh, for yeah. others who uh, have no religion, it's an imaginary law. It's an imaginary crime. Yet it has real effects. Uh, like, um, think of Mubarak Bala, you know, um, yeah. think of Ayaz Nizam in Pakistan. Yeah. Um, he's been in jail for, since I was writing for Kanandas News, he's one of those cases people don't speak much about. It's a pen name uh, for Abdul Wahid. Uh, he's, he's actually on the listing um, for the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Um, and he's still in jail. I think it was in 2021, in January, maybe January 6th, 7th, or 8th. Uh, he got the death penalty. Three other men got the death penalty. These were the first class of uh, cyber terrorism because it was an application of uh, blasphemy under terrorism laws in that case. Um, Do we know if they have any any right to appeal still in, uh, in those cases? I don't know enough of the legal mm. setup to know what kind of rights they would have, but um, I would assume that they would have the ability to do so maybe at an at international level, maybe with a little pressure. Um, yeah. But even with Mubarak Bala, where we had very prominent people and, and prominent news uh, reporting on it, that pressure still probably wasn't quite enough. However, uh, countries and, country, and national leaders hate bad international press. So that kind of push can really help. Um yeah. So these, yeah. So these the cases in Canada that was used at one point. Uh, some British Columbia Humanist Association. Um, uh, they're certainly on the more uh, center left left end of things, um, and uh, the Quebecois they tend to be more center center right. Um, and there are a couple individual uh, people who run an organization that they try to speak on particular issues uh, uh, and concerns around Islam and Islamism. Uh, and then uh, there are some um, that focus purely on political matters and they all yeah. bring together a coalition of people actually to put forward uh, appeals to uh, the federal uh, government. Um, so SCS, I forget the, the name off the top. Um, so, so it sounds like it's quite, it's quite structured. It's quite well organized. Um, the, 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 the sort of, uh, the, the, there's a, uh, there's a robust movement in place. Uh, there is uh, the disagreements organizationally tend to be personality disagreements. <laughs> ah, well, that's, that's the same everywhere for sure. Um, I just have a couple, couple of quick fire questions before we go. Firstly, um, I'm sure our in listeners will want to read everything uh, and hear more from you. Where's the best place to find you or follow you? Uh, I would argue I'm publishing more in the good men project right now. Um, so I'd look there. Uh, and listen to me. Uh, I barely do audio interviews. Isn't that terrible? I should do more. I told Leo Igwe, I said, you, uh, I'm, I'm following your lead. And so I started doing more interviews. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, we have a wonderful podcast named Humanism Now. Uh, we, we heard there. <laughs> That's um, a good place to find you. And we'll share your, yeah. your uh, social, social um, 
handles in in the uh, the podcast description as well. Um, and finally, our usual question just before we go: um, What's something that you've changed your mind on recently? Uh, two things. Uh, one sort of practical. Um, I'm transitioning out of uh, working in the question industry. Uh, so I live in the horse capital of British Columbia. I decided to do a journalistic project working and writing on that industry because uh, it's very interesting to live here. Uh, and uh, it was a very steep learning curve. It's a very, it's still a very steep learning curve. So uh, I changed my mind on uh, thinking I could get super far uh, in this field. It's, it's definitely not an area of uh, expertise for me. In terms of just the, the how to work uh, with a horse, uh, yet I can do sort of basic to intermediate tasks. I can be comfortable around a horse, uh, and I'm proud that I made it that far. Uh, intellectually, uh, uh, that uh, international change isn't going to be happening as fast as I would like it to, uh, and there will be significant uh, setbacks um especially the human rights abuse in a lot of areas where uh, it's life or death. You know, it's not about uh, other important issues, but less immediate, like respect for an individual's uh, sense yeah. of uh, personal identity and autonomy. Um, it's more just getting people the, the basic needs that they need to live a dignified uh, ethical life. Well, and I guess that just highlights the importance of, um, reporting and, and getting these stories out there. And as you said, publicizing some of these, uh, all of these issues and, and keeping the pressure on and, and hopefully um, keep up the great work, Scott. Um, and hopefully we'll see that change happen, hopefully a little bit faster uh, than it has been recently. Um, but thank you for everything that you do. And thank you so much for joining us on Humanism Now. You're very welcome. Thank you. Welcome back to Humanism Now. And thanks once again to Scott Jacobson um, for joining us. Um, after a long day uh, 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 looking after horses, which you could see had uh, started to take his toll by the time we were chatting then. But it's a fascinating range of experiences and definitely do check out his interviews and blog. Um, he's spoken with some amazing people and uh, he's just a yeah, really fascinating guy. Um, Mark, uh, w what did you take away from that interview there with Scott? Well, first of all, I was very impressed by the fact that you come to humanism via Monty Python. That was, uh, I'd never thought of that as a conduit <laughs> to humanism. And I, uh, as, a, as, a, as a Python enthusiast myself, I now start to see the parallels and connections. So uh, that, that was, uh, yeah, you've got to love that. Um, I thought he, I mean, it's interesting how he had a lot to say about issues we've just been talking about uh, and touching on in terms of sort of, you know, humanist values as being, Universalist and informing sort of um, um, you know sort of international conventions and uh, and definitions of um, just war etc and that um, and the way in which humanist international you know have a sort of a have a have, you know, I suppose what Joe is referring to is like a model or a, or a template of what constitutes uh, or what they should do anyway what constitutes um, just war what what constitutes grounds for intervention or or, or condemnation of um of state actions um in terms of international conflict so that was I, yeah i assume that's a happy chance but it was a very very interesting and relevant to what we were discussing before and i thought broadly speaking what he was saying was pretty much consistent with what we've be also been discussing so um i mean i was also 
I like the fact that he talks about publicity, negative publicity having a strong impact because, you know, as humans, we sometimes feel quite powerless, but maybe we underestimate the, the extent to which just speaking out um, can embarrass and, uh, and and make you know regimes very uncomfortable when they when they when they when they when they engage in bad actions and uh, persecute uh, innocent people and um, yeah um, uh, and uh, and finally just you know the, the situation rega- with regarding um, uh, humanism and um, you know relig- religion in Canada and and, uh, and what he discussed around the uh, the evangelical university was uh, not entirely surprising but a very interesting insight into the situation there and, and the way in which you know it varies across different provinces um, uh, within within Canada as well the, uh, that was that was really interesting yeah he really emphasized the power that the human voice can still have you know that individuals can speak up and use their voice and 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 um and be a, be a force for good. So, yeah, um, I, I agree that, that, that it can seem with so many huge challenges in the world, you know, the climate crisis and the conflicts, you can feel hopeless and powerless sometimes, but they, he, he certainly gave me a sense of hope. Um, and AJ, I know you know Scott. I think you've also been featured in the interview series. Um, so what did you take away from that? Yeah, Scott, I met for the first time in Copenhagen last year, as you mentioned, for the World Humanist Congress and General Assembly. Uh, I found him to be such an immediately likable person and really, really driven uh, as well. So he's just one of many humanists, uh, along with Leo Igwe, Andrew Copson, just many others, too many numerous to name, that just put in the hard yards and just do the, the basic, sometimes hidden, uh, behind-the-scenes work very, very well. And, um, yeah, we connected on Monty Python, um, uh, as well as many other things. I mean, we had a previous podcast episode last year looking at uh, comedy from a humanistic perspective and Python really featured, featured in that. I mean, I, I try not to have heroes myself, but Michael Palin certainly is, is someone that I've always looked up to and just his approach from, I think comedians can often, we mentioned this a bit in that podcast, comedians can often give us an insight into other aspects of our society and social discourse, even politics and philosophy, even though they're not polit- politicians or philosophers themselves, just the yeah. attitude and the way their brain can work, I think is, is really nice. And Scott definitely has that in, he's kind of, he kind of brings that to his journalism. Uh, maybe you could say, you know, he's, he's doing for you know, humanistic journalism, what Python did for, for comedy in some sense. And his, the importance of journalism really came out to me listening to him there. And whenever I read his work, he's so passionate about, as many journalists are, but I think we need more humanistic journalists like him who are flying the flag for humanism. He's uh, relentless. Again, he can travel all the way to Ukraine, put himself at some personal risk there to go and meet uh, Remus, uh, another colleague and friend of us who also came to Copenhagen. Really, really brave journalist in, in his own right. And please do follow him on, on TikTok. A Romanian journalist who's uh, really trying to document what's going on in Ukraine, because ultimately, you know, we know. I think it's it's true. Uh, democracy dies in darkness, and we're seeing that with the Israel-Palestine conflict, or at least a good portion of it. When journalists are not allowed in, when on the ground reporting is restricted, then it's difficult for, especially humanists who want to try and make an informed decision and having informed, uh, rational, evidence-based ways forward, it's difficult for us to understand. I mean, luckily, 
because of modern technology, the actual victims are broadcasting their own suffering, which is horrific in some sense. But I think journalistic uh, inputs are also needed there. And, it's, and, and it's, it's, quite, it's quite useful for Western journalists to be able to come or journalists from all over the world because then they can connect with their own populaces in a way uh, that they know will, will, the message will ring true at home. So he's Scott's embody, embodying a lot of what I think we need in uh, journalism, humanistic journalism. And another thing that he embodies is the internationalist aspect of it. You can see if you look at his uh, his uh, series of interviews, it's everyone and anyone from all corners of the of the globe, and have and prioritizing those global connections and stories, showing that humanism isn't just a Western, US, UK, French, or European, or Anglosphere project, but it's it has roots in so many cultures natively, and they can express humanism and teach us a lot about it, and we can share with them, and it's a bi-directional process. It's not just a project of the global north. Is something that I really admire about Scott's work, and I'll, in that in that also vein, in that vein as well, and with Copenhagen in mind, I should give a. Um, a tip of the hat to um, a lovely lady that I met there and had dinner with, Marta Sperkland, who um, listeners may want to look up. She's a Norwegian journalist and she's an editor of the magazine of the Norwegian Humanist Association. And she, I think, and Scott, both in my mind, embody the importance of progressives getting better at narrative storytelling, which often is pointed out that the um, you know, right-wing or anti-progressives or conservatives are very good at speaking in narratives, very good at having that kind of grander narrative and tale that people could then feel a part of, whereas maybe the progressives, we speak more in, you know, again, this uh, narrow version of humanism being, oh, we're just rational, we focus on the facts, we're, we're kind of don't want to be weakened by emotions or intuition or... Uh, giving in to sort of other sympathies, I think that's a narrow and weakens humanism for for a reason. Humanism, as we said before, has to be embracing both the empathetic and also the the rational, the emotional, and also the logical, and focusing on human beings to find and and uh, amplify their stories and tell the story of humanism that way, rather than maybe just in nonfiction or reporting, is something that I, but that I think Marta and also Scott embody perfectly. Yeah, we certainly need more like him, but and and agreed, it's uh, it's quite a skill. And yeah, I think I think actually the role of the free press and the role of, uh, and the role of storytelling and these are interesting topics for us to explore in future episodes and in terms of their importance um, in the humanistic movement. Great. Well, thank you both for for your feedback. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Humanism Now. So thank you to both of our guests for joining us here today. Mark, um, do is there anything uh, happening uh, with any of your groups at the organizer, or particularly with CLH, that you'd like to plug? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, in terms of the discussion group, as mentioned, we will be having another another one. Uh, it's on the uh, the second Thursday of uh, of each month. So um, we have yet to specify a topic, but uh, we'll be making an announcement on on Meetup about that quite soon. And obviously, uh, the exciting event is we've got our AGM uh, coming up, uh, which will be a, a fantastic opportunity for for the group to come together and to uh, to enjoy each other's company and a, a summary uh, and, uh, of uh, the activities over the last year, including my treasurer's report, which will be, I think, be the highlight. Uh, and also free free food and drink provided. So uh, what's not to like? Uh, so that should be, and, and as well, of course, as our, well 
uh, I'll let you you, you describe, but uh, we have a, a really exciting speaker as well who will be um, taking over the second part and presenting the second part of that uh, of that meeting. Absolutely, yeah. As mentioned on the podcast previously, we will have uh, Madeleine Goodall joining us from uh, the Humanist Heritage Project to talk about London's rich humanist history. So very much looking forward to that. And you can catch up on Madeleine's uh, episode of the podcast as well uh, if you'd like to find out more. And AJ, very good to see you again. And uh, I believe this is our last uh, recording uh, before your uh, next travels. So um, where will you be heading to? And is there what, what exciting humanist or interfaith projects will you be getting up to? It's always a pleasure to join you, James. I'm glad to be back. And I, I thought I could have done more last year. And I want to, despite my traveling and other commitments, I do want to be more of a regular feature on, on the podcast, uh, despite the time zone. So happy to kick off the year in the right way. Uh, yeah. So I'll be, I'll unfortunately miss the CLH AGM next week as I'll be traveling. Um, but I'll be back just in time for, um, one of the highlights of the, the spring, the first half of the year which I've been going for a few years now, which is the Youth Interfaith Summit organized by the Faith and Belief Forum, which Humanists UK and Young Humanists have good links with, and also Religions for Peace um, UK, on which I, I, I help out with the, the steering committee. And there's a special focus on climate this year as well. That will be, I think, the first week or just maybe the 8th of February, if I can check that quickly. Uh, yes, it's the 8th of February. So I'll be back in just in time for that. So if listeners are uh, curious about that or planning to go, please do uh, connect with me. Um, in um, Asia this year, uh, I'll be hopefully making a several trips, one of which will be to the Humanist International General Assembly. Last year it was in Copenhagen. This year it will be in Singapore, but that's in the summer. But there'll be a few trips around that as well. So if you are in the Philippines uh, or in Kuala Lumpur or Vietnam or Singapore, um, or Bangkok, please do get in touch because I'd love to hear, especially in um, in Malaysia and in Thailand, what humanistic uh, and secular projects are going on there. Uh, there, there was a humanist uh, association in, in Malaysia, which I think as had was went dormant and had to be removed as a member of Humanist International. Uh, in Copenhagen in our annual review of all the members. So I'd like to reconnect with them as well. Uh, there's various sort of Facebook groups and, and uh, outreaches that I've made, but having some on-the-ground uh, knowledge there would, would certainly really help. But as part of uh, being a, a director in Humanities International, the, the scope and the brief is really global. And especially in Asia, we see a massive black hole. I wouldn't be traveling in Central Asia, unfortunately. I hope to do so in the future. But if I'm uh, for having the opportunity, but especially in Central Asia, where we have a, a dominance of religious republics and uh, theocracies, there is uh, a, a stranglehold and a suffocation on, um, as the Freedom of Thought report released by Humanist International said uh, towards the end of last year, on even just the counting of secular, rationalist, non-religious people, let alone trying to provide for their human rights and trying to provide for their civic needs. They almost are a non-factor. And I think especially youth have a really important part to play in that using things like social media, TikTok, uh, Telegram to get around state censors and restrictions to try and make sure that their voices are heard 
that feeds into the parts of what we were saying before with uh, the people like uh, Scott and Marta and others. So they, they can have people to go and interview and amplify their voices and tell their stories because humanism really needs that global aspect emphasized as much as possible. So whatever small part I can play in that this year, I look forward to doing it. As we said, year of, uh, year of exploration. Fantastic. Well, thank you both once again for joining us. And thanks again, uh, listener, for joining us on Humanism Now. If you like the show, please do like, rate us, um, and share it with anyone you think would be interested. You can contact us uh, to submit your questions or nominate guests at humanize.live at gmail.com. Uh, and we're now live on most social outlets as well. The links will be in the show notes as well as the links to anything referenced in today's episode. So thank you once again for joining us and we will speak to you next time on Humanism Now.